Hello, uh, hello, Mr. Chapo. Is this Mr. Chapo? Um, hi, everybody. Uh, hi, Chapo listeners. This is Derek Davison uh, of the Foreign Exchanges Newsletter and uh, the American Prestige Podcast. Uh, I want to thank uh, Chris particularly for giving me uh, a couple of minutes here to uh, make a couple of points at the at the top of this episode. Uh, you're about to hear me and the boys discuss the situation in Ukraine uh, and Russia. Uh, although the interview is the episode is coming out here at the end of the week. Uh, we had this conversation on Tuesday evening. Uh, East Coast time in the U.S. Uh, and it's now Thursday morning as I'm recording this. And, and obviously the situation has changed quite a bit. So I wanted to point out uh, what's happened. Uh, I'm sure many of you are already aware of what's happened. Um, but essentially, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, on Thursday morning, uh, Russian time, early Thursday morning, uh, delivered a speech. Uh, it may have been pre-recorded. Uh, they, I think, tried to pass it off as live, but there are indications it was uh, recorded a couple of days ago. Uh, delivered a speech announcing uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, he called it a special military operation to protect uh, Ukraine's separatist Donbas region, the Donetsk uh, and Luhansk People's Republics, both of which uh, Putin uh, recognized as independent states earlier this week on Monday. Uh, I I don't want to try to give a blow by blow of what's happened since then, because any information I give you right now is going to be outdated by the time most of you listen to this. So uh, let's just say that the impression that I get so far uh, is that this is a much wider invasion. It's not just an invasion of the Donbass or an invasion to secure the Donbass for these two people's republics. Uh, there are reports of uh, missile attacks um, and some ground fighting uh, in places like Kiev, uh, Kharkiv, which is a city in the uh, second largest city in Ukraine. It's in the east. Uh, Odessa, Ukraine's main port city in, in the southern Ukraine. Um, so it, it, this looks like a much wider operation. It looks like it could be uh, the, in fact, the nightmare scenario of the full invasion regime change war that the Biden administration has been warning about that other folks uh, have been warning about for several weeks now. Uh, I have to confess, I did not think that this was coming. Uh, I don't remember exactly what I said in the, the show, uh, but my mindset going into that uh, discussion was that I thought having recognized the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk, that some form of military conflict was probably all but inevitable. Um, but I, I didn't expect it to be the full-blown invasion. And it, it, again, it may still not be that. We may, these may be, uh, these early attacks may be meant to uh, kind of decapitate Ukraine's military capabilities uh, before a more limited uh, invasion of the Donbass. But there are some things that that suggest it's it's a bigger war, not just the reports of fighting uh, in places that are far outside the Donbass, uh, but also some of the rhetoric Putin has been using uh, in his speech on Monday, where he recognized the two republics as independent. He basically discounted the very notion of Ukrainian statehood, um, which you know is is. Tr- troubling language to use. I don't want to get into his interpretation of history, but you know, it's, it's uh, not the kind of language you use if you're just planning to go occupy a little piece of a place. Um, he also uh, talked I, I, on Thursday in his speech, uh, announcing the invasion, announcing the war. 
talked about the need to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. We can, you know, get into questions of denazification. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but the upshot, I think, for, you know, in terms of what's happening right now is there's no way to do that without a full-blown invasion and occupation of the country, not just an invasion, like uh, an actual military occupation for some time to set up uh, a new government. That's the kind of thing that this implies, something akin to, let's say, the U.S. invasion of Iraq. I have part of the reason I've had a, a difficult time believing that this is what was going to happen is because I think it is a um, an act of borderline insanity uh it's far from clear that the russian uh military can win an expand extended occupation in a country of about 44 45 million people most of whom have spent the last 8 years growing to hate vladimir putin and russia uh so i i i'm i'm stunned really in, in a way that that this is the course that they've chosen uh because i think it's going to be a very very difficult um lift for them and i think there were other ways to fulfill their objectives. Uh, but uh, yeah, the upshot is again, I don't uh, remember exactly what I said in the episode, um, but I, I was not expecting what happened. So I probably said some things that uh, would have suggested uh, something less than this. Uh, and again, we have to wait and see um, how this all fully shakes out. It's, it's very early. There's a lot of uh, fog of war. And uh, so I just wanted to kind of s- Keep get everybody as up to date as as I, I could without, uh, you know, within the confines of the podcast uh, medium, which is is not great for uh, breaking news like this. Uh, also, uh, one last thing, uh, uh, if Chris leaves it in the interview, and I don't know if he will, uh, I blanked out in the middle of the interview on the name of, uh, the head of the Russian foreign intelligence service, uh, Sergei Narishkin, uh, who was one of the people who got scolded by Putin, uh, in their strange cabinet security council, not cabinet security council, really, uh, meeting on Monday for flubbing his lines. Uh, so I just wanted to, uh, say his name and I feel, you know, like I've, at least uh, overcome that. It was a real kind of brain fart moment, and I apologize for that. Uh, so that's it. Uh, again, thanks to Chris and thanks to the boys for having me on uh, and also for giving me a few minutes here at the top of the show to uh, kind of uh, set the stage for what's actually happened since we had our conversation. Uh, and thanks to all of you for listening. It feels a little strange to say enjoy the interview under these circumstances, so I'll just say take care of yourselves, and uh, I'm sure I speak for all the Chapo uh, crew when I say um, if you've got, uh, if you are in Ukraine or if you have uh, loved ones in Ukraine, uh, our thoughts are, are with them and with you. All right, so um, it's Chapo coming in hot on 2-22-22, the most important date in all of numerology, because it's the date when Vladimir Putin has decided to invade Ukraine, or at least the beginnings of an invasion, as according to our president, Joe Brandon. Uh, we said we never learn about it, but we are forced by world events to once again talk Ukraine. And uh, to help us along, it's the number one foreign policy expert in the world, Derek Davison back again of foreign exchanges. 
Derek, yes, welcome. Thank you. Foreign we'll put- exchanges and American prestige. Don't forget the podcast. American prestige. Well, I mean, we're going to. I'll I mean, get yelled at by Bessner if, if, if I don't say that. So well, I mean, yeah. American prestige, that, that's a thing in short supply these days as Vladimir Putin's forces rampage <laughs> all over the Donbass region of Ukraine. And our and Joe Brandon, they're dabbing commander. on us, folks. <laughs> they are, they are. They saw the dastardly Slav is know. dabbing all over us. <laughs> I want, I want to, I want to just get like, uh, get, get an executive summary of the last few weeks and how we've gotten to this point. But uh, I want to begin by asking Derek, uh, did you see the epic dunk that the U.S. embassy in Kiev landed on all of uh, Russia today? Oh man, all the like lulls or whatever. I don't know. I mean, it was, it was uh, like a bofa. Yeah, so Russia. I mean, they're just like <laughs> they're never going to recover from that. So they have to I didn't see this. Okay, okay. So check this out. Okay, so this is the U.S. embassy in Kiev is doing is doing memes, and the meme was comparing, uh, like like archi- just that sentence. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> comparing like uh like architectural treasures and like world world the cultural historical landmarks in Kiev in like the ninth, tenth, oh, right. and eleventh century, and then it was like Moscow at the intervening years, and it's just like a dirt strewn forest. Which is interesting because they seem to be making the argument that like Ukraine is like the heart of the <laughs> Slavic Empire. I yeah, Kiev <laughs> and Rus much? Come on. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the Moscow and Rus. Yeah, it's like they're. I mean, you could use the same series of pictures to argue that like, yeah, Ukraine should be part of Russia. It's all. It's also like That's exactly this is right. Yeah. Literally from eleven hundred years ago. You could like, also who uh, gives a shit. You could also use it to make the argument that the United States <laughs> yes. didn't have any of those cool buildings standing until like 200 years ago shouldn't be in charge of anything. I would love to yeah. see I would love it's, to see the Chinese consulate in DC do a similar one for Beijing and DC around similar time period. <laughs> this this like all you Uk- I don't know what it is with Ukraine. But you could the Ukrainian foreign ministry itself, like all American diplomatic entities in Ukraine, they all do like the most fucking like Imgur memes. It's crazy. There's just something about like the literary voice of Ukraine where they're always doing memes that were hot in like 2014. I mean, is it the Reddit country? I don't know. But like especially these this last week where it's like, okay, well, you you got you you. Like got Zelensky to do what you wanted after he like got elected as being kind of dovish to Russia. You got what you wanted. Uh, they called your bluff. Uh, everyone's making fun of NATO, but you you get to do socially awkward penguin at Putin now. <laughs> okay, it's even it's worth the Havana syndrome to be able to do that kind of uh, epic internet. That's right. Yeah, I'll take the ray gun and the memes. Let's do it. I guess, like, uh, Derek, like, just could you, could you do your best, like, sort of narrate, like, like how you got to this point now? Like, it seems like the last few weeks of escalating tensions have gone from uh, they are definitely going to invade tomorrow to it looks like they're going to attack this week to um, they or they have invaded or uh, they've done a limited invasion or it, as Biden said this afternoon, it looks like an invasion. So, like, I mean, like, what, what is going on here? Like, like, how how did this situation escalate and like? Uh, how does it relate to like uh, Putin or Russia announcing today that they are yesterday that they are recognizing these two breakaway republics? Right. So, I mean, we've been in sort of a, a cycle here uh, since 2014, but the most recent iteration of that cycle uh, started in November. Uh, Russia started moving military assets back into 
the southwestern part of the country, suspiciously near Ukraine, um, and carrying out military exercises. Again, this is something they've done over and over again, and, and pretty much every time they've done it for, for a few years now, the United States has warned that an invasion is you know, imminent and that they're massing up for, for something. Uh, this time, the, the deployment was significantly bigger, I would say, uh, than in past instances. They put forces in Belarus to conduct joint exercises with the Belarusian military. They put uh, they did exercises in Crimea. They did exercises in the Black Sea, naval exercises. So kind of surrounding Ukraine uh, with a very large force. Uh, that's what sparked this kind of steady drumbeat from the U.S. It was then picked up by uh, especially the U.K., but other European governments, uh, that there was an imminent invasion coming. If you read, there are a couple of commentators I've seen suggesting this, and I, I mean, I don't think they have any deep insight, but it seems like initially the Ukrainian government kind of looked at this situation and said, well, we don't, we're not sure an actual invasion is coming, but if we kind of play into this, we could get weapons, we could get some you know, aid, we could get something out of the West uh, to it's, support us. It's free javelins. It's free, exactly. It's free you know, javelins. It's free javelins. It's all, I, the, you know, all the stuff we need. It's, it's nice for Ukraine where their army is rumored to just like the second they get American weapons, small arms and shit, they just instantly sell them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, flip them. you know, they, they hand them over to, to, or they turn, they turn them around or they hand them to the, uh, the paramilitaries, which are the, you know, the guys that are really of, of concern ideologically. Uh, the, I, I, I can't, I don't think you can call them neo-Nazis, just actual old school Nazis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, so it seems like, you know, they played into this for a while, but then the drumbeat got louder and, uh, it continued on kind of steadily over weeks and weeks and really started to affect, uh, the Ukrainian economy. Uh, airline, you know, international airlines stopped flying into Ukraine or they sort of, sort of started hinting that uh, we're not going to fly in without supplemental insurance. And, and there was, uh, you know, other uh, big impacts on the Ukrainian economy. Um, and consequently, uh, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, a TV star turned a politician, uh, sort of uh, uh, maybe three, four weeks ago, maybe a little bit more than that, uh, at this point, started saying, you know, maybe you guys could cool it with the imminent invasion talk because it's crashing my economy and we really don't see uh, this uh, the same information that you see. Alongside all of this, there's been a flurry of diplomacy. There have been meetings between Antony Blinken and Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, um, you know, meetings between Vladimir Putin and Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany. Uh, you may have seen the comically oversized table that he had them sitting at. Uh, and, you know, there's been this kind of back and forth, like they're going to invade, you know, Wednesday at 730 or they're going to invade this weekend. Uh, they're going to invade. It's, it's imminent. It's imminent. And the Russians have drawn this out last week, I guess. It, I, it's all blurred together for me. The last two weeks have like become a complete blur. Uh, but they even suggested uh, that they were kind of done with the military exercises and that they were going to start to bring uh, soldiers back to base that proved to be um, maybe some misdirection on their part. Uh, and then uh, most recently uh, on Thursday, Friday, uh, things kind of really took a turn uh, to the more serious. You had uh, escalations in shelling along the front line in eastern Ukraine. Uh, you had the two P-51 
People's Republics, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, uh, announcing mass civilian evacuations into Russia. I don't doesn't seem that that many of the civilians actually uh, listened to those those orders. But uh, regardless, um, you know, they sort of, I think, manufactured to a, to some extent. But there were claimings there was some kind of imminent. Uh, Ukrainian attack underway and, you know, genocide is the term that uh, the the two people's republics have been using and that Russia has, has sort of adopted as well, uh, which then prompted Putin to, in this big spectacle uh, on Monday, um, decide very grandiosely to recognize the independence of the two republics, which have been claiming independence since 2014, and to uh, send Russian forces in as quote-unquote peacekeepers. And, um, like so, so what what is the significance of because like you know like these 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 two people's republics these these breakaway republics I mean like they they have they've been they've been a thing for a while now but like what is it what is what does it practically mean for Russia to officially like diplomatically recognize recognize them and even send in as I, I believe they have done or have been doing like you know Russian soldiers as like peacekeeping forces to protect the Russian speaking or Russian citizen population of the of these right. parts of the of Ukraine. So, I mean, these are the parts of Ukraine that really rejected other than uh, along with like Crimea uh, that really rejected the 2014 Maidan protests and the overthrowing of then President Viktor Yanukovych. Um and, and they're they're full of Russian speaking um you know, I, you can get into ethnicity, it's it's dicey, but certainly Russian speaking Russophilic uh, population. Um, and so they've been kind of maintaining their own independence, uh, in the years since the, the Maidan protest, uh, Putin has, the Russia has supported them. Um, they've probably had, I mean, they've had military assets in, uh, the region It's called the Donbass collectively, uh, since basically since 2014, but not in an, in an overt way. What's changed really is that, uh, they're now doing it overtly under this peacekeeping rubric. So, yeah, I mean, these are regions that want to be, I think, part of Russia. I don't know that they're going to get annexed uh, the way that I think uh, their leaders would like. But they, they've rejected Ukraine. They've rejected kind of being part of Ukraine. Um, the regions themselves are relatively impoverished. They're sort of uh, heavily industrialized coal producing factories, the kind of stuff that that hasn't fared too well in the global economy uh, of late. So they're they're fairly impoverished. Um, and part of the appeal, I think, you know, you can you, you'll read people who argue this as well. Part of the appeal here in, in sort of glomming onto Russia or kind of moving toward Russia and away from Ukraine is not just a, a linguistic thing or a cultural thing or an ethnic thing. There's an economic factor at play here. Russia is doing substantially better than Ukraine, economically speaking. Uh, so, you know, for, for people living in this very impoverished region, it, it makes a certain amount of sense to to go that direction. What, uh, in your mind, capped Russia from doing this since 2014? Is it so, like is it like the sort of the switch up that Zelensky took once he was in office? Um, I think that's part of it. I think that the the rationale after 2014 for Russia, which uh, I I don't think, you know, the goal was ever uh, until recently was to carve these places off of Ukraine and kind of operate them as as little fiefdoms or, or you know, occupied territories or whatever. Uh, I think the the intention was to 
uh, bring all of Ukraine back into the Russian sphere of influence or to, you know, uh, uh, kind of pull it back away from the West through whatever means. And I, I think, you know, Putin made some, I would say, mistakes in, in how he did that. Um, but I don't, the, what the decision that they've taken now uh, strikes me as sort of a last ditch thing. Like the effort to destabilize Ukrainian politics didn't work. Uh, it did get rid of Petro Poroshenko, who was more of a nationalist, um, certainly an oligarch, but adopted a, a more nationalist kind of hostile line toward Russia in favor of Zelensky, who ran as the peace candidate and said, I'm, you know, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to resolve these problems. Uh, Zelensky didn't wind up being the peace president. Uh, he's only continued this sort of hostile line. And so I feel I, I feel like this is uh, a decision that's taken as sort of a last ditch uh, effort to maintain uh, the ability to keep Ukraine unstable, but it also the reason I say it's the last ditch effort. It forecloses on a lot of other uh, ways that Russia could try to maintain influence in in Ukraine. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Zelensky's turnaround has a lot to do with it, um, and I think you know this is something that that they were probably hoping to avoid. Uh, they were probably hoping to that something better would work there would be a better scenario that presented itself but this is like here we are um and then like i, I guess like an, another thing of note that's happened recently and that, that colors a lot of what's going on here at least the, in the very recent recent um uh, events is the decision by vladimir putin to um broadcast this kind of very stage managed cabinet meeting that he had where he spoke at length and it was like by by a lot of a lot of observers regarded it as fairly loony even for him. But he gave a like a long long list of prepared comments and sort of berating his own cabinet. But where he spoke about sort of like the, the what what he sees as kind of the historical context for this, like Russian history, Ukraine history, Ukrainian history, and and like like his his case for why Ukraine has never actually been independent, and essentially kind of like blaming Stalin and Lenin for Ukraine. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, this is actually that the the staged skit that he pulled on or televised skit that he pulled on on Monday was actually the second one of these. I think uh, there was an earlier one that I, I think was him and and Lavrov, his foreign minister, and maybe one other. I forget who it was, um, but th that was a couple of weeks ago, and they sort of did this managed thing where like Lavrov. Uh, you know, it was like a, a Abbott and Costello routine or something. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. But Lavrov was like, gee, Mr. President, I think that you should give diplomacy more time to work. And Putin was like, well, you've convinced me, Sergey. I think we'll give diplomacy. And it was like kind of a bizarre, stilted thing. Uh, the one on Monday was even more bizarre. <laughs> Who's on curse? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the one, the one on good. Monday Pretty seems good. to be. Even bad. more bizarre because he actually got angry at a couple of them. Like Mikhail Mishustin, uh, his prime minister, kind of seemed flustered and like, uh, you know, he was kind of kind of hinting that he wasn't entirely on board with the idea of recognizing uh, in the independence of the, the DNR and the, the LNR. And Putin like lambasted him, <laughs> like got a little bit irritated at him. Uh, and the the head of his foreign intelligence service, and I forget the guy's name, Sergei and uh, oh, shit. <laughs> nah, never mind. I'm gonna I'm gonna flub it. So anyway, his his uh the head of his foreign intelligence service was like again flustered. He sort of was like, 
I, I, yes, I, I support. And Putin was like, just, just say your line, say your line, like yelling at him on TV. And the guy was like, I, I support uh, these regions becoming part of Russia, which wasn't what they were talking about. And Putin got even more pissed off at him. So it was like this, you know, they were sort of operating from a script and, and they were flubbing their lines and he got uh, very upset about that. Um, but yes, then he went into this speech after that, after this sort of staged meeting, uh, he said, you know, we're going to I'm going to take some time to think about these very important things that my advisors have informed me about. And then I will have a decision later. And he gave a speech that was really, uh, you know, kind of seething in parts. It sounds like he was angry at NATO. He's angry at the United States. Um, he's denying the the sort of uh, statehood of Ukraine or the the legitimacy of the statehood of Ukraine. Um, and, and so, yeah, that that speech spoke to a, maybe a wider uh, intention here. But I, I, I think what he's done is actually somewhat measured and, and it'll be interesting to see how uh, heavily the West responds to it and, and whether that sparks more escalation. The, the thing I like um, that we found out about Putin in this last round of theatrics and set pieces is that he's the guy we were looking for. He's the conservative COVID scold. <laughs> yes. Dude, like uh, the, the distance that he, I know, I know I know, it's a big dick move to make Macron sit 30 feet away from you or to like have to walk across this like giant ballroom to confront you. But like Putin is like a COVID p- paranoic, right? Like he is super, super, uh, you know, uh, like zero. He's like, don't even, don't even look at me if you have a cough. Like, yeah, by all accounts. Because he was doing it to his own cabinet too, you know? Yeah. Right. No, I mean, that was in the in the, you know, again, the staged cabinet meeting. He had the whole National Security Advisor uh, Committee, like council sitting together on one side of the room. And he was sitting all the way on the other side of the room, like at a desk. Uh, You know, it was very obvious that he was distancing himself. So it is it is a factor. And, I, you know, people talk about this stuff like Xi Jinping, the, the, you know, president of China. Uh, hasn't left China since the, the the pandemic hit. I mean, you know, these guys are very worried about uh, contracting this this illness. But like, I mean, in terms of his comments on this, you know, like the historical uh, legitimacy of Ukraine and like this sort of Russian nationalist mythology. Like, I mean, like how like how does that play into this? Like, how does he see? Like how did for for his political project like why is Ukraine so important to this like idea of like a greater Russia or like this kind of the the sense of loss that um that he plays off for like the the for his sort of Russian imperial project or whatever you want to call it yeah I mean Putin is a is a Russian nationalist and he he was uh, it was interesting because um, on Tuesday one of the many uh, statements that came out of Moscow was Putin sort of uh, assuring the other former Soviet republics that, you know, look, when I deny Ukrainian statehood, I'm not talking about you guys. You guys are cool. Uh, It's just Ukraine that I'm talking about. Um, So, I mean, he does have something of an imperial project, I guess, but it's really focused on the idea of the Russian people and the Russian nation, which includes uh, not just Russia, but includes Belarus and Ukraine. Um, And, you know, we kind of laughed about that, that embassy meme, but that what that embassy meme, the image of the the uh, the sort of buildup of of Kiev in the 12th century or the 9th century, the 10th century, uh, that's that's the origins of you know the Russian civilization basically, or the Russian people, uh, and so it's very difficult to uh, unbind or you know disentwine 
uh, Ukraine and Russia and their histories and their cultures. Uh, so for somebody whose project is rooted uh, in a sense of Russian nationalism, the idea that Ukraine is somehow uh, not just distinct in, in sort of a nation state sense, but that it's like moving away from Moscow and moving into uh, NATO or the European Union into these very Western, uh, you know, organizations. Um, even though a lot of Ukraine, sort of the the right bank of the the or the the, the kind of Western half of uh, of Ukraine has been uh, historically was part of you know Austria, the, the Austrian Empire, the Habsburg Empire, uh, Poland, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, other kind of uh, European quote unquote institutions or, or polities. Um, still, the idea of all of Ukraine kind of moving in that direction is is hard to to absorb for somebody who who views himself as a a, a Russian nationalist. Um, okay, so uh, what have you been seeing from like let's for, let's say like the the U.S. State Department and like the people who are loudly opposed to this, like what Biden's comments today, like. I mean, I know Russia is already under sanctions, but like, you know, if, if Putin continues to go ahead with this or things continue to escalate, how do you how would you anticipate uh, the West with the West or like the United States, for instance, to um, counter them or retaliate in some way? Well, so we've already seen some retaliation. Uh, the The Biden administration uh, started, you know, uh, with, uh, its first tranche with what Joe Biden characterizes the first tranche, uh, of sanctions, uh, which includes a couple of major Russian banks, uh, a ban on, uh, us financial institutions or where really any financial institution, uh, since us sanctions are, are global, um, trading in Russian sovereign debt. Uh, there's apparently going to be a new round of sanctions on Wednesday targeting, um, oligarchs, basically wealthy individuals with ties to Putin. Uh, there's a report in foreign policy that they're working with, uh, Asian states to try and implement, uh, export controls, kind of global export controls that could prevent Russia, uh, from, uh, acquiring semiconductors. The EU is, is, you know, and this is, you know, that's, so that's the US and the EU has uh, already drawn up a list of, you know, a bunch of Russian individuals. They're talking about, uh, doing asset freezes and travel bans on every me member of the Russian Duma, which is uh, the lower house of the Russian parliament. Uh, the UK has announced a few uh, limited sanctions. I think there's going to be more to come here. The big thing that happened on Tuesday in this realm is uh, Schultz, the Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Schultz, announced that uh, his government was freezing the certification process for the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which is a major uh, could be a major blow to the the Russian energy sector. Uh, Nord Stream Two was going to be the big uh, kind of main artery for Russian gas to get into Central and Western Europe. Um, so that's that's a fairly sizable. Um, but how would step that and, how would that play for you know people who'd like to stay warm during the winter in like let's say Germany or Central <laughs> Europe? Yeah, so that's the the downside here, and one of the reasons I'm kind of surprised that they uh, they pulled that that trigger this quickly. Um, it's going it to definitely lead to gas shortages. Uh, we're still sort of, uh, it's a tail end of winter, but it's still, you know, still cold out there. Um, it's definitely going to lead to shortages. It's going to lead to higher prices. There's no alternative for Europe um, to Russian gas in the short term. There are options uh, for developing alternatives, uh, U.S. Uh, liquefied natural gas, liquefied natural gas from Qatar, uh, potentially, you know, gas from Azerbaijan or Israel, if Israel develops its offshore resources. 
Um, but in the immediate term, there is no real alternative to Russian gas. So that's that's going to be a a, a a pretty steep price for the Europeans, uh, for the European people to pay. I like how um, they can't really sanction oligarchs, especially oligarchs living in other countries that much because it's like. Well, uh, goodbye, city of London. Exactly. Like, like if we can't, if you, if if <laughs> these banks can't launder money, right. then like, what right. can exactly. they do? Um, yeah, there's vulnerability both ways, right? Like, you can sanction the oligarchs, but eh, you know, you're gonna you're gonna be. Uh, hey, what you want? You want the Louis Vuitton store to close down? <laughs> think of think of the, think of all the jobs. Think of all the jobs that'll that'll cost. All right, so like I I know last week everyone thought like World War Three was going to happen any moment now. I mean, I, there's a lot of people who are still saying that, but I mean, it seems like the likelihood of if not like a full scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, but some sort of some military intervention or some sort of armed conflict seems to be more likely than not. Would you agree with that? I think that what's happened over the last 24 hours, let's say, has increased the likelihood of a larger military conflict than the one that already existed kind of, you know, was frozen in, in Eastern Ukraine. I think it may have, and this, uh, you know, very much depends on what happens next, but it may have reduced a bit the likelihood of this like nightmare scenario that, that the Biden administration has been talking about with a full scale invasion and like sieges of all the cities and kill lists and mass executions and all these kind of uh, wild scenarios that they've been running with. Um, the Russians, uh, the the Russians, in recognizing the DNR and the, the LNR, their their uh, independence, there was briefly some ambiguity about what that meant in terms of uh, did they just mean the territory that those republics control right now, or did they mean the entirety of Donetsk and Luhansk provinces in Ukraine, most of which are actually still kind of on the government side of the front line. Um, the Russian foreign ministry issued a statement earlier, very early today that I think suggested they might just be talking about the, the republics as they exist now, which could have maybe forestalled a, a bigger conflict. Uh, but then Putin, um, made a statement that I think was pretty unambiguous that what he recognized was the independence of all of Donetsk and Luhansk as the, uh, DNR and LNR kind of claim them, which is, you know, to say all of both of those provinces, they claim the entirety of those provinces that that I think uh, if that's the way they're going to approach this, it, it probably makes some level of a conflict inevitable. Um, but I think probably on the level, a level that would be more akin to, let's say, the 2008 Russian war in Georgia, uh, or even if you want to go back a little further, the Kosovo war in, in the late 90s. Uh, so not a regime change, like not a not an Iraq 2003 uh, full scale invasion, a regime change operation, but something uh, meant to establish kind of the the separation, the independence and the separation of these republics on the territory that they define as theirs. You know, uh, assuming for the moment that um, all parties here would prefer um, no violence to occur rather than any 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 level of armed conflict. In your opinion, are there are there serious diplomatic avenues or alternatives that are not being pursued here by like, for instance, by the State Department or like, I mean, like, is there any way to like to turn down the temperature before any true like outbreak of hostilities or armed conflict happens? It, it may be too late at this point. I mean, I think that the there was a window to do something 
like uh, the term the term that people use is Finlandization. This is you know refers back to uh, Finland kind of declaring neutrality in in uh, in the early 20th century in the first half of the 20th century, um, and you know forestalling um, a Russian inv- or Soviet at that point invasion. You know Ukraine could have done something like that. It could have um, forsworn the possibility of ever joining NATO. Uh, in return for some kind of a guarantee from Russia, you know, who knows whether that would have uh, actually worked, but it, it was one possible path to take. I think that's probably foreclosed by now. I don't, I don't think you can can resurrect that. So I, I'm I'm a little pessimistic now about what diplomatic initiatives could stop this, especially if if the the LNR and the DNR are intent on seizing more territory from the government. I think that's probably. Um, guaranteeing a conflict but you know it's possible that uh the ukrainian military could fall back to a you know deeper line you could sort of uh test out whether the russians are going to be satisfied to just establish the independence of uh these republics or their occupation of them uh and uh, or whether they have designs on on going further uh one of the things i'd be worried about frankly as we you know just talked about this kind of wave of new sanctions uh, with more to come is is doing too much. Um, you know, if you respond, a lot of the the planning that's gone into how are we going to sanction Russia? What are we going to do? And sort of these discussions that have been happening between the U.S. and and other NATO members and European Union members uh, has been attuned to the idea of this full scale invasion. And so you've got these very maximal sanctions that would do maximum damage to the Russian economy uh, if you impose that level of sanction now after something that falls short of a full-scale invasion, you put Russia, you put Putin in particular, in the position of saying, like, you know, what do I have to lose then? If you're just going to do this to me anyway, uh, there's no deterrent anymore. I might as well just uh, just go all the way to Kiev and and beyond. So that that's one of the things I would worry about is over-sanctioning uh, in response to what's happened thus far and kind of trying to calibrate those things. Yeah, I'm I again, I'm I'm pessimistic about any diplomatic channel that could actually just completely avoid conflict at this point. I, w- I want to get your take on one of the things I read today from a uh, former adv- Obama advisor and Harvard economist who said that uh, in terms of the global economy... <laughs> wow, that's you're ter- starting <laughs> off on a great foot. In ter- he said, they, they said that in terms of the global economy, uh, Russia is totally insignificant except for oil and gas. And it's essentially a gas station. <laughs> and I was just wondering, like, I mean, what, is, what does that mean? Because it would see, like, you know, uh, aside from oil and gas, yeah, it seems they're pretty insignificant. But with, yeah, with oil that, and gas, like, are, are they totally yeah. insignificant? I don't, uh, I don't know. I mean, like, Russia is Russia is a, just a gas station? I understand, like, their GDP is, like, not even the size of Spain's or whatever. But, like, they do have yes. a shitload of oil and gas. This is a, this is a thing that uh, Obama people, ex-Obama people really like to talk about this. And they like to belittle. Uh, Russia in this particular way, um, and it's not entirely wrong. I mean, Russia is a is a kind of strange uh, dichotomy of a country that has a great powers military and a very middling powers economy. But they are, uh, you know, instrumental to the global oil market. I mean, they're one of two countries, along with Saudi Arabia, uh, that can basically dictate what the price of oil is going to be at any given time. They control. Um, you know, or they, they share control of OPEC plus, which is the, uh, you know, big, you know, oil cartel conglomerate, uh, that determines supply. 
Um, so they, they have a tremendous amount of influence in that regard. They, uh, they have a huge uh, amount of influence. We just talked about their, their gas supply, which, you know, Europe is essentially beholden to, um, and it's going to be a, a very rocky time if Russia, I mean, you know, if, if in response to, let's say, shutting down Nord Stream 2, uh, if the Russians decide to cut off all gas supplies to Europe, that's, that's going to, that's a real threat. And that could really do some, some damage to, to Europe. Um, so they, they're obviously important. I mean, they have some obvious ways that they can, some obvious levers that they can pull, uh, to do real economic harm to the, the rest of the world. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know what sense it makes to kind of, uh, belittle them in that fashion, even if, you know, you can acknowledge that, uh, they're not an economic powerhouse. They're not China. They're not, you know, kind of at playing at that level but but still still pretty important if i could like i mean just like to 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 switch gears from ukraine for a second but like they are related in this sense like you know like afghanistan like the american uh withdrawal from afghanistan and the biden administration's you know uh seemingly belated but uh, eventually necessary confrontation with reality that they were willing to take that l I remember when that happened, we all had this idea that it was like, uh, great, finally, we're ending a war. But it was this kind of like, like a little, a little bit queasy because like the U.S. empire doesn't pull out of somewhere without ramping up elsewhere. Like, how do you see like uh, um, America's role in this in terms of like reasserting itself after being embarrassed by like, you know, uh, the fall of Kabul? Um, I mean, I think there's something to that. Um, you know, there is a... Um, one of, I mean, one of the underlying issues here from the Russian perspective, and I, I think, uh, you know, there's a tendency to discard this because uh, I guess anything Putin says, we have to pretend that he's lying because, you know, otherwise we're apologizing for him or whatever. Uh, but one of the things he's repeatedly talked about is uh, the threat of a, a, a NATO, you know, of, of Ukraine becoming a NATO member and stationing, you know, the, the possibility of stationing. Uh, U.S. weapons or, or NATO weaponry and, and personnel in Ukraine and how close that would put them to Moscow and what a security risk that would be. Um, I, I do think, and I, I don't know that you can necessarily tie it directly to Afghanistan and sort of reasserting, but there is this sort of insistence and there has been this insistence that, you know, NATO membership is like this sacrosanct right of all nations and uh, we can't possibly compromise in this area. And I uh, on the one hand, like realistically, okay, I, I can I can sort of understand that, or I can I can sort of you know when when this situation was really blowing up and Putin was issuing his list of demands, like I want to be you know I want to be able to uh, dictate where NATO expands or if NATO expands at all and where NATO positions its soldiers. I mean, you know, this isn't something that that NATO as an organization could accept. Um, but at the same time, like if you just you know, stop trying to to kind of muscle your way further east uh, and push this alliance closer and closer to Russia's borders. I think uh, maybe you could have avoided all of this. And again, I don't know that you can tie it necessarily to kind of you know we're 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 trying to swing our uh, dicks around after Afghanistan, but it's certainly a part of this imperial uh, swagger and this need to be everywhere at all times and and throw America's weight around all over the world. Do you do you think that, um, you know, because I feel like in Biden world, kind of they you have guys that are like, you know, sort of clear eyed on things like Libya and maybe Syria. But then his concession there is that he has, you know, people who are the opposite of that on Ukraine. And it seemed like 
the people that he was always going to get like on his security council, like for state and everything like that, they were going to want to take like a way more aggressive posture. I mean, I think it was, it was kind of written that it was going to be this way because this is also like, that's also like a, um, a central mantelpiece of the liberal, the enforced liberal world order, like a strong Ukraine where you're implying that there is a, an on-ramp for them to join NATO. Yeah. I mean, Ukraine in particular plays into this, this idea of spreading the liberal world order all over the place and, and uh, NATO expansion to not just Ukraine, to Georgia, to, you know, who, who knows where else is, is, uh, a big part of that is sort of the, this this idea that we can, uh, you know, NATO, which lost its reason for being in you know 1990, basically, uh, that it's it's become this thing where we kind of spread the the great liberal world order and and you know kind of bring more and more parts of the world underneath its, um, uh, I don't know, protective embrace or something. I don't know. I was I was going to ask though, like this, what we're seeing right now. This can't be like what the Hawks pictured. Like, I know that they don't like, you know, you can't full on call it a failure because they don't exactly want like peaceful coexistence. But it's hard looking at this and trying to figure out what they wanted. Like if you if you're a more hawkish Atlantic Atlantic Council member or something like that. I mean, cynically, I got the sense that a lot of them wanted the invasion, like a lot of them wanted the full scale Russian invasion so that we could do the the heaviest possible sanctions so that we could take as big a, a a bite out of the russian economy and you know ukraine would have been lost a lot of people would die could still i mean this could could all still happen i'm not i'm not saying that we've completely you know kind of uh, we're completely out of the woods in that possibility uh you know a lot of ukrainians would die a lot of suffering a lot of you know uh pain but that would be ukrainians i mean it's basically like we're willing to fight to the last ukrainian life uh, to to you know punish Russia or to take a bite out of uh, out of Russia, and I, I also think you have to uh, uh, accommodate or, or consider what the last well, I guess six years at this point have done to the democratic brain in terms of Russia and uh, you know the 2016 election and Trump and his relationship with Putin. Uh, and just the obsession with that, uh, what that's done in terms of the whole party, uh, but certainly the kind of people that Biden brought in uh, around him for foreign policy in terms of just their conception of, you know, the threat, I guess, that Russia poses or, uh, you know, the need to do something about this Putin character. I think it's, you know, uh, it's embedded there. Uh, it's taken hold pretty, pretty strongly. Not, I mean, not just in the party kind of politically, but in the media ecosystem around it as well. As long as we're talking about uh, punishing people, I just want to like take a, a quick digression. And I was wondering, Derek, if you could explain to me or to, to us and our listeners, what, what, what happened this past week with, uh, the Afghan Central Bank and like the U.S. decision essentially to remove all funds from it and what, what the practically that means for Afghanistan. So uh, the decision that they took, uh, the Afghan Central Bank, Da Afghanistan Bank, had uh, at the you know at the time when the Taliban took over in August, uh, had some somewhere in the range of about nine to ten billion dollars. Uh, in overseas assets. Uh, a bit over $7 billion of that was in the United States. Uh, the Biden administration immediately put a freeze on the entire amount of that money, like even the stuff that was 
is invested in in places other than the United States because of U.S. sanctions. It's it's inaccessible to the Afghan central bank. Uh, what Biden did uh, most recently then was to take the seven billion and change uh, that are in the United States that are invested in U.S. institutions and say uh, we're going to set aside slightly more than half of that money, so a little over $3.5 billion, uh, as potential reparations, potential legal settlement for uh, the victims, the families of the victims of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. And then we're going to take the other half of this and we're going to use it to pay for humanitarian relief efforts, which at that point uh, kind of... Uh, it makes them not humanitarian relief efforts anymore. The idea of humanitarian relief is that it's donated to the people, not that they pay for it themselves. Um, but the, the upshot basically was to decapitalize the bank, which is going to have tremendous economic repercussions for a country that's already uh, economically imploded. Um, and, and basically to loot, even if you, even if you sort of credit them with this, 3.5 billion that they've dedicated to humanitarian relief and say, that's actually good, which I would argue it's not. Um, but the other half of that or a little bit more than half of that, you're basically looting out of the bank, uh, to pay the families of the nine 11 victims who it, it, it suffered obviously. Oh, wait, tremendously, hasn't the U S government already paid them a shitload of money? Well, uh, but they have cases. I mean, they do have, uh, cases in the U S court system, uh, basically testing whether they can get at, uh, the funds that are they're okay. that are controlled sure. by the Afghan central sure. bank. Sure, I mean like they're so they're owed funds by someone, there. but why aren't they going after the Saudis? What the why why well, the this people is, I mean this is the question, right? Um, e even if we operate from the perspective of you know these people are owed something, uh, they're owed something by Al Qaeda or they're owed something maybe by the Taliban. Uh, even that's a little bit tenuous, but okay. The money that was in the Afghan Central Bank is not the Taliban's money. It's not Al Qaeda's money. It's the money. The, it's money that belongs to the Afghan people, who I think we can all agree, after the last twenty years, twenty plus years, were as you know, suffered as much from the September 11, two thousand one attacks as anybody in the United States. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, uh, there they were victimized by that attack as well, and and now you're asking them on top of that. Uh, to to pay these legal uh, settlements potentially, which is uh, just just uh, you know repugnant. I think. When you walk to the garden. All right, gang. Let's uh, let's switch let's switch gears to to round out the show with a uh, a reading series from, in my opinion, my favorite Ukraine expert, my favorite foreign policy expert. I'm talking. I'm talking Russian star. I'm talking Terrell Germain star, a.k.a. Russian star. He is, uh, I don't know, he's been, I don't know, he's embedded himself in, in Ukraine. He's been uh, traipsing around Kiev dressed like, uh, you know, fucking Santa Claus or something. And, uh, you know, he's basically, he's basically like the go-to guy on uh, all things Ukraine. So I, I figured I, we'd, we'd put our foreign policy expert up against, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I mean, we'll, I mean, you know, like the king. The absolute king. I mean, just just real quick though. I, uh, I mean, I you guys, you guys have your. Uh, you know, he's eating escargot in Lviv and taking donations from people to do it. It's, uh, it's good, good stuff. Terrell Stars. He he's been a character for a while now. And just, just before I get into this reading series, uh, do you guys have any favorite uh, Terrell Star, uh, like like sort of greatest hits of all time? 
Because there, there's oh a few of them. Oh, my God. There's so many. <laughs> um, well, I, we, I talked about a few of them before we recorded, but there was the one where he's like, um, uh, what's a good resource to read about uh, nuclear information and nuclear uh, information on nuclear weapons? And then, like, I think, like, hours later, was like, if you have any questions about uh, nukes, you know, just, like, ask me. Yeah, uh, that was as part of his brief uh, with Jalopnik as their defense correspondent. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Uh, what, the the um, the Your Name is Reek correspondence. What was certain, that again? Remember? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah um, he was um, treated very cruelly by a woman doing fin dom in front of everyone. Uh, um, I mean, who can forget the time that uh, Terrell uh, wrote a uh, just a, a really surprising restaurant review of a certain eatery in Kiev, a certain a certain theme <laughs> restaurant in Kiev that he had a great yeah, time uh, dining yeah. at. Yeah, Herschel's Last Resort, <laughs> little cosplay <laughs> restaurant. Uh, yeah. yeah, for for people who don't know Herschel, uh, <laughs> Terrell, that's actually went, the name of it. It's Herschel's Last Resort. Yeah, he he went to um he went to a restaurant in Kiev where the waiters are dressed up like rabbis, and it's the theme is that it's a Jewish restaurant. And part of the experience is that you haggle your bill with your waiter. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, what was, it's like medieval times in the shtetl. Mm. I mean, essentially it's awesome. Uh, oh, I'm still like little ones, like uh right sector in the, his house. Yeah. 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 That was a great one. That was a great right one. sector in the, his uh, the house. G, I mean, the GRU tweet we talked about, you know, he's like, three years into his career as an expert in Russia and Ukraine and asking people on Twitter, like, what is the GRU? What is the, what do they do? Uh, Gru, the time, it's the bad the guy time, from Minions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was a time he, he identified Odessa as being in Crimea. Uh, it is not in Crimea. But again, this was like three years or you know, a few years into his career as a Ukraine expert. I mean, basically, he's, um, he's, he's the go-to guy if you would like someone to write an article about how um, refusing NATO membership to Ukraine is white supremacy and it's centering rem- white voices I, I remember and another one. Like, there was some, some flare-up in tension with North Korea and just, like, very quietly, uh, his Twitter bio suddenly uh, was edited to include, like, expert in the Koreas, you know, for, like, <laughs> Into Korean relations or some shit. Well, like, I mean, sure, he, why not? He's an all-purpose expert. He's the go-to expert, and you know what? One of the things he's an expert in television shows, and you know, I can relate. So th- this is this is an uh, this is a piece he wrote for the uh, the Daily Beast back in uh, 2016. But I think it's, I think it's worth revisiting today. The headline is simply Vladimir Putin is Russia's Marlo Stanfield. You, of course, you might <laughs> yes. remember Marlo Stanfield as the uh, villainous drug kingpin from a little show called The Wire. So let, let's let's dip into Terrell Star here, and like you know, I, everyone says if you want to understand what's going on in Ukraine right now, you want to you want to read into these tensions. The only thing that matters is just what's in Vladimir Putin's wily head, and you know, no one can really uh, suss out what's going on here, save for Terrell Star and vis-a-vis HBO's The Wire. So. Uh, Terrell writes here, Russian President Vladimir Putin has a brother from another mother, Marlo Stanfield, the fictional kingpin from the classic HBO series The Wire. The gangster DNA both men share are almost identical. Both men are brief and to the point. 
neither gives a fuck about rules that do not favor their own self-interest, nor do they have a problem tooling up if you threaten to undermine their authority. And the sooner American policymakers see the similarities, the better able Washington will be able. The be- <laughs> as soon as American policymakers see the similarities, the better able Washington will be able, Washington will be able. To, to handle God, Putin's the Moscow. Bomb pros here. Wow. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh my God. He, you know, that is the equivalent of watching an expert dog traipse through an agility course. <laughs> <verbally>. <laughs> Oh, I, 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 I have the, um, I'm sorry. I have the, um, I found the, your name is re correspondence, but, uh, he's, this woman was quote tweeting like a, a guy trolling her and Terrell's like, you know, oh, you have such interesting idiots in your mentions, you know, just like bad guy reply. And she's like, what are, what the, like, what the fuck are you contributing? Are you, are you helping anything but offering your pathetic commentary by, and his reply to her is. Well, I am sorry about that. And yes, I will contribute again. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So continuing on here, it says uh, the Russian leader wants to wear the crown to use some wire talk. He wants to have his own empire, just like America does. I mean, that's a hell of an admission by Terrell Starr there. (laughs) I just think just uh, just Putin. He's uh, he's 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 meeting at the uh, the commission. One more thing. Price of natural gas going up. (laughs) Uh, He says here, uh, it may be morally wrong to annex parts of Ukraine and to set up shop in the eastern part of its nation. But so what? That's what gangsters do. They take shit and ask any motherfucker to step up to them if they have a problem with it. In Putin's mind, he is doing nothing more than what America did to position itself as a world power. The United States was founded by white men who killed off American Indians who were here first and enslaved millions of people from Africa to build up the economy and later set up Jim Crow to keep black people in check for decades after that didn't work out. American global dominance exists in part because Washington killed off millions of people through war and slavery. That is what wearing the crown is about in international relations. Talking, taking shit because you can. Taking shit because you can. Wouldn't it be, shouldn't it be talking shit because you can? If you're wearing no, the I'm not well, taking not shit. Taking. I mean, we're okay. taking. Oh, empire, oh, I got taking. Right? Oh, I meant like okay, we're take plundering, take plundering, yeah. not just like take. Okay, taking abuse from other people. Okay, I we're, got it. we're plundering the Afghan Central Bank, for example. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Now, now you may argue that drawing a comparison between a real life world leader and a fictional television character undermines the seriousness of any intellectual discourse on Putin's global <laughs> no, and domestic influence. No, I no way, Terrell. No. I would not say that at all. Yeah. And anyone who if anyone who tries to tell you that they're the ones not being serious. Yeah, I'm just I'm just going to say right now, if you say that you're a piece of shit and you don't know anything about either shows or foreign <laughs> policy. That's right. That's right. You got to know at least one of those things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He knows two things. A basic he knows two things. Person. You got to pick one minimum. None. That's bad. What are you doing? What are you here for? <laughs> what are you contributing, really? Unless yeah. you're yeah, financially yeah. contributing yeah, to this. Yeah. No, yeah. If you don't know about shows and you're not a foreign policy expert, just, you know, hit my cash app. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, uh, Terrell writes here, to the contrary, I believe Putin and Marlowe sh- share the same worldview and operate within structural sh- structures that are equally broken and flawed. Understand one man and you'll get the other. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to know, I mean, just fi- sure, fire up yeah. those DVD players. We're, we're revisiting seasons three through five of The Wire. Shouldn't, doesn't this mean that we should make like David Simon the 
like secretary yes. of state or yes. secretary of defense. He, he should uh, be he should be our like our go to negotiator because you know if you understand if you understand the streets of Baltimore, then you understand what's happening in Ukraine right now. Because you know, like like you know, uh, NATO that's Avon Barksdale, that's Stringer and Avon. You know they're gangster, but you know like they're they got a little soft, got a little complacent, and then like they're, they're, this new cold blooded, ruthless uh, like street soldier is just stepping up, and he's gonna he's gonna put he's gonna put some lead in anyone who uh, anyone who 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 uh, wants to take the crown from him. Oh no, here are examples to help. Putin took over Eastern Ukraine in Marlow fashion, and he has a quote here from the Wire. This spot all built up and shit. We need it, yo. That's what Marlo Stanfield said, and that's mm. what that, and that's what Putin's saying to the uh, Eastern Ukraine. He's saying that's we're facts. we're going to be pumping heroin out of Donbas. Yeah, and then and then uh, I can think of uh, some other classic wire characters. Uh, I think Obama fulfills two roles. He's brother Mazone, you know, Muslim, and he's also <laughs> Omar. He's a gay man. <laughs> Hey, and you know what? Like, just like Brother Muzone, Obama loves reading the Atlantic Monthly and New mm-hmm. Republic. So, yeah, there we go. That's the best. That's the best character ever. He's in Nation of Islam. He's Fruit of Islam. Is the five percenter, but his favorite magazine is like the New Republic. <laughs> like he loves like Marty Peretz. <laughs> He's good writing. Um, I gotta say, I'm uh, Turrell is convincing me here because like I I love this idea that you can analyze world events through watching television. Because, like, you know, I understand this. I've seen The Wire. Uh, as he says, there was a scene in season four where Marlowe, along with his top enforcers, Snoop and Chris, approached dealer Bodie on his drug corner. Bodie had the corner humming with business, but Marlowe wanted it. Bodie had three ways to respond. He could take Marlowe's package, his heroin supply, leave the corner altogether, or fight Marlowe. Now, by this point in the series, Bodie had no protection. His former employer, the Barksdale Organization, fell apart after its leaders were either arrested or killed. Bodie was by himself and couldn't defend his territory, so he had to buy drugs from Marlowe until his new boss eventually killed him for snitching to the cops. Like Bodie, the leaders of Ukraine found themselves defenseless against a stronger expansionist Putin who himself has no respect for boundaries. After protesters took to the streets in Kiev in November 2013 to protest former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych's refusal to sign a trade agreement that would have been integrated that would have integrated the country more closely into the EU economy, Putin soon backed anti-government rebels in the east with military support. They would eventually take over several key regional cities and Russia annexed Crimea. Basically, Putin took a corner of Ukraine that was built up and forced its leadership to accept his diplomacy to solve a problem he created. I mean, don't, don't you see this, guys? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's like uh, completely completely mirror images of each other. I mean, this is just such a thin thread, though, because like you could, he's using. I mean, admittedly, I'm glad that we get to read more of his prose, but he's using a lot of this to be like, just to say like, oh, uh, Marlo's gangster and takes stuff and so does Putin. Yeah. But it's like if if you're using this much space, you could also argue that Putin is like uh, Norm from Cheers or that he's like Dr. Katz or whatever, (laughs) whatever, like. See, I it's think, such a thin thread connecting all of it. Um, does anyone remember uh, the character Thomas Jane portrayed on the HBO series Hung? 
He was a high school gym <laughs> teacher with a huge dick who uh, starts having sex with women as a gigolo for money because of his huge dick. Now, he's not the smartest, the most talented guy, but he is hung. He does have a huge dick and he's using it to lay pipe on um, just sort of horny older women. I think in a lot of ways you could say Putin is a lot like Thomas Jane's character in Hung as well. <laughs> and the old ladies in this scenario scenario are uh, European buyers of uh, natural gas. And he's laying pipe yeah. for them right now. <laughs> he's laying pipe yeah. for them. That's right. Yeah. But like the, when he fucks Natalie Zia and like really likes it, you know, because she's like hot. That's like when he gives weapons to Russian speaking separatists. I'm uh, I'm trying to figure out who Ukraine is snitched to in this scenario. Like, who did they? Who are the the cops that they snitched to? Oh well, you know, I mean, obviously uh, uh, McNulty and Bunk. And no, but I mean, I mean that literally. I mean, Ukraine has complained to the Baltimore (laughs) Police Department about about Putin taking their corner. Uh, I thought you were going to say they've they've complained to Dominic West. uh, (laughs) They're calling the actor. (laughs) (laughs) Is. Is America McNulty or Bunk? Because it's it's America. I feel America's like Stan Valchek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like just okay, a yeah. just a senile uh, oaf, right? I, I mean, I if we're trying to be more romantic though, like Terrell is trying to be, like I feel like America and Canada were McNulty and Bunk, right? Because we're the two groups, where the two countries where we care about Ukraine the most. Yeah, no one cares about Ukraine like us. Not even uh, Ukrainians. Frankly. No, they do not give a shit as much as your average Ukrainian or uh, Canadian. No way. Um, I would have to say that America is probably McNulty because it's like we're always screwing up, but people are like, ah, you know, you tried, you did, you did kind of a good job, like in Afghanistan. And I would say Bunk he, with his like lovable. Uh, his his lovable foibles and extramarital affairs that would have to be Justin Trudeau in Canada. Does Bunk have extramarital affairs on the show? Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, oh crazy. right, right, right. Yeah, he has to get McDulty uh, to pick him up from the bar. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Ugh. Yeah, gotta gotta gotta. Somebody gotta, is not uh, <laughs> as up on the shows as they need to be. Yeah, to really. I don't here. know how you expect to analyze complicated world affairs if you're yeah. not. I need to. I need to go back and study more Ukraine. Yeah, will will um. You know, he can try to make this like movies, but it's like no one wants to know what character in A Knight's Tale Ukraine is. It's just like uh, more, more just just like uh, like I said, the, 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 this article here is just padded out with just a plot summary of what happens in the wire. It, it really is impressive. <laughs> I should I want to say this like it's impressive how much how many words he drew out of this like stone basically I'm, of a premise. So like. like he really got a lot out of it. You're, you're never going to guess where he's going with this. So he says here, in season four of the series, Marlowe was winning a violent street war against the Barksdale organization and other smaller drug outfits. When Marlowe wanted someone executed, he would dispatch Chris and Snoop to kill the person in an abandoned home, nail the entrance shut with a power gun and leave their bodies. On the, on the streets, these Marlowe made tombs were known as vacants. Anyone who dared cross the young drug lord found himself in one. Proposition Joe, an east side drug lord who organized the co-op with the city's top dope boys, handled street disputes under a United Nations-like framework, joked during one of the meetings that Marlowe can make an inconvenient mm, disappear, can't he? In Russia, the prison system serves as Putin's vacants. Mm. (laughs) So there's a going like Prop Joe is like Antonio Guterres. He's like the secretary general (laughs) of the United Nations. There's another parallel. 
But I feel like the EU being prop Joe is like a way better analogy. I mean, like, yes, who, who knows? I'm just going to like, I can't, this, this article goes on fucking forever and I don't want to spoil the wire for anyone who hasn't watched it yet. But he just says here, uh, just closing it out here. He says, from a foreign policy standpoint, we have to stop positioning America as the more noble side during our engagement with Moscow because both countries are imperialist nations with expansionist agendas. Neither is better than the other. They both do fucked up shit to weaker states. America did invade Iraq in 2003, and NATO felt it was its business to take out Muammar Gaddafi in Libya in 2011. And let's not even get into the United States' long history of interfering to often terrible effect in Latin America and the Caribbean. By viewing U.S.-Russian policy through the lens of the wire, I believe we can analyze more effectively how best to engage Moscow. But to be clear, Putin is like Marlowe. They're both gangsters. But given how dirty both of their worlds are, I just don't think it's fair to single them out as the worst ones. The wire understood this and positioned its depictions of the good guys and the bad guys accordingly. Too bad the men in three-piece suits in Washington and Brussels condemning Putin over his behavior can't look at their own actions with similar honesty and self-reflection. Do you think they would if they saw the wire? I think they would. I think they would. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That was uh, Obama's entire uh, strategy for change was get people to watch the wire. <laughs> and it worked. A okay, lot of people worked. watched it. That's why everything's great. I think I think I want the article about how uh, Putin is actually Martin Tupper from Dream On because every time he gets <laughs> horny, he imagines a 50s movie in his head. <laughs> Okay, I think I think Terrell Starr here. I think he's like the 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 Freeman character. I think he's just sort of like the the quiet, bespectacled fellow who you know people discount, but like then he's actually low key the smartest one around, and he's just like you know building his little doll furniture, um, you know, just like just being quiet, um, but but also he like he's the one who has the analysis that will crack the drug empire of Marlowe, Barksdale, Vladimir Putin. All the pieces matter. <laughs> I I am gonna I'm gonna offer it. Uh, I'd like to rework some of this. I think Obama's a guy from a different show. I think he's uh he's the lead character in Banshee because he assumed someone else's name. He assumed the name Barack Obama from his former name Barry Sotero, just like how our hero became Lucas Hood. I, I think honestly, if more people had watched the show Banshee, I don't think we would be in the state we are now. Because, I, I mean, like, everyone's trying to analyze foreign policy through through HBO shows that critics like. But if they had seen probably the best show of the last 20 years in Banshee, then, um, I don't know, like, I don't think we've been in this problem. Because, you know, like, Banshee's one of the, the bad guys... Wait, wasn't the bad guy in Banshee, like, a Ukrainian gangster? The rabbit? The ra Was there... I thought the was rabbit he, was, he was Russian? Like Serb. Uh, no, I thought he was... I thought he was, like, Serb, but I have to watch it again. Oh, God, I mean, what... I, I, God, we've 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 yeah. done so bad analyzing foreign policy because we I've, we've already forgotten most of these shows that oh really like God. laid everything out. I mean, uh, this is on another level. Like he was, in fact, yes, he was a Ukrainian. So oh, there you okay. go. Okay. Everything okay. comes together. I just I like how did how did this get published? Is what I want to know because like the premise is so fucking thin. Was it like they owed him an article and they just kind of had to run <laughs> anything because this wouldn't. I don't even know how that this would get like a passing grade in a community college. You, this is I mean, just like such a thin premise. Like you could, yeah, like you, like we said, you could essentially do the same level of analysis comparing Vladimir Putin to the bad guy from any other TV show. Yeah, no, you could like 
you could be like, oh, the world stage is like Darkwing Duck and America's <laughs> Darkwing Duck. It's <laughs> <laughs> the guy he fights. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And the way the way that he summarizes it at the end is like such good, bad writing where it's like, uh, obviously, like everyone's bad. But I think if we look at it like the wire, we see that the fact that everyone's bad. <laughs> Damn, good job, like, dude. Vladimir Putin is like Shane Vendrell from The Shield, but America <laughs> is Vic Mackey, and if we understood that we were Vic Mackey, then we could deal with the problem. Yeah, because Shane is, is more evil than Vic Mackey. I mean, because that's the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the point here is he's saying is like, yeah, America and Russia, they're both gangster nations, but but Putin is like Marlowe and that he is a new level of, of evil, cold-blooded ruthlessness that, you know, shocks even the conscience of of, uh, you know, hardened criminals like the United States Empire. And like, you know, obviously is putting the thumb on the scale for like, that's why we're actually the good guys in this conflict. <laughs> I saw um, Terrell's thing. Uh, the most recent thing I saw him talking about Ukraine was that Putin's view of Ukrainians mirrors like a white supremacist view of black people. Yes, Which that was is, pretty great. Oh, sure. actually, I, like, okay. It was like critical Slav theory or something. <laughs> well, uh, here, here's one that I mean, here's just a couple of couple hits from a Russian star uh, today. Uh, he says here, for all these people saying the West should agree to not allow Ukraine into NATO. I have a question. If Putin can force our hand on that, why would he stop there? Even if Ukraine signed documents never to join NATO, that would not change his behavior. You do realize that telling Ukraine that it should never join NATO is a slap in the face to the one third of the alliance and suggests that none of Eastern Europe should be in NATO or the EU. Continuing, he writes, you do realize that centering France and Germany's thinking and financial interests over Eastern Europeans is offensive and discriminatory, right? If Eastern Europe wasn't in NATO, Russia would be threatening to attack Germany again. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. If, if, sure. Why, sure. Why not? If you yeah. think if you what think Putin's demands should be respected, you are you you pretty much are defending Eastern European racism. It makes sense because most white scholars who hold this view are very much about maintaining white power structures anywhere in the world. No one believes in Russia's capability quite like Russia hawks. I don't even think Russia believes that. Like, I don't think there's I don't think there's anyone in the Kremlin who's like. Oh man, I can't wait till we get Ukraine out of the way so we can finally take over Germany. <laughs> like it's not even clear to me that they think they could win a long-term war in Ukraine like an occupation that would fall They probably in. can't. Uh, which is why I think they're trying to do this like smaller bite and and uh maybe stop there, but but you know, the the discourse about Putin in particular like I, it's it's unlike anything I I've seen in any other part of foreign policy like discourse it's it's either uh you either have to believe that he's a world historical genius like he's the amalgamation of every conqueror that's ever been throughout all of human history and he's constantly like 10 moves ahead of everybody else playing chess he's just this massive uh kind of you know super genius or you have to believe that he's just a buffoon who's constantly backing himself into the corner and like taking L's all over the place. And uh, there's no middle ground. It seems like for, for people when they're commenting, commenting on this stuff, the thing that like drew the latest rounds of like Hitler, like world domination comparisons, uh, taking Crimea in 2014 is like 
is that like is that like the on ramp to world occupation taking like a tropical six flags <laughs> like, what, 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 what are we doing here well i mean you know you could say that but like I, there was another gentleman who thought he could wage a long war against his rivals for total regional domination before it all blew up in his face. That's right. I'm talking again about Marlo Stanfield of The Wire. Oh, that's right. Oh, Absolutely. You know, I mean, you may wear the Mind crown. Blown. You may wear the crown, but nobody wears the crown for long. You know, uneasy is the head that wears the crown because eventually someone else will take the crown. I mean, that's basically the lesson of The Wire. If you've seen that show, as Terrell has. <laughs> and uh, Bernie, Bernie was like Frank Sabatka because he was like, oh, hold on. Can we talk about white people? <laughs> I'm racist. <laughs> uh, Bernie was season two of The Wire. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, oh! We need to do protectionism, and that would make our show. That would make our show Ziggy. Yeah, we're Ziggy. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that works. Yep. That holds up. Okay, there we go. Geopolitical analysis via television. I mean, it, it's the way of the future, and honestly, it, it breaks down complicated issues in a way someone like me can understand. A TV watcher. Oh, the oh the Greek is Israel because he's like kind of playing all sides. Because it's like <laughs> it's like on one hand he's like, oh, you know, I'm kind of friends with Russia because they like give me white people <laughs> when, I need, when I need a ton of white people. <laughs> you know, I'm friends with Marlo. Yo, yo, <laughs> the price of Jewish refugees from Russia going up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, this is yeah. actually, you know, we made yeah, fun of this. Also this is pretty the, good. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely the Greek who's also uh controls the US government. <laughs> <laughs> he just has to send a fax to that guy in the FBI and all of a sudden they do whatever he wants. <laughs> well, there we go. I think that that puts a bow on it uh for today's episode. I want to thank uh Derek for joining us once again. Uh, Derek, absolutely. The newsletter, the podcast, American Prestige, foreign exchanges. If people want to uh, get get on that, get on that Knowledge Express straight to East and West Baltimore, where all the important yeah. and world events go down, or at least can be compared to. Uh, where should they go? Uh, so the podcast is uh, American Prestige. You can find it anywhere you uh, uh, you find your podcasts, uh, or you can uh, check out our Patreon page uh just google that and you'll find it uh that's me and danny Bessner. we do uh two shows a week one for subscribers and one for uh for the the general populace that covers the the events of the week um and uh yeah the newsletter is foreign exchanges uh fx.substack.com uh you know please check that out too that's sort of the uh, i wouldn't be able to do the podcast if i wasn't like spending 10 hours a day on the newsletter so uh yeah please check that out too and uh, that's uh that's all i've got time for really i'm i'm wiped out as it is is you're the king of uh, all media in the, in the left <laughs> my empire is growing that's right you got howard stern over here uh president Zelensky. president Zelensky will be riding the sibian later <laughs> if vladimir putin is listening to this podcast please just take a day off give me give me a break for like one day let me get a good night's sleep and, and then we can go back to it the next day all right gang um till next time bye 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 thanks guys cheers derek we'll all be safe from satan when the thunder rolls we just gotta keep the devil way down
me keep the devil. 